This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitive. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm John Foley, the U.S. editor of Breaking Views here in New York. Now, as milestones go, it's hard to beat the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th U.S. president on January the 20th. He's taking office with a team of seasoned would-be policymakers, a to-do list as long as your arm, and a deeply divided country to govern. I chatted with our D.C. expert Gina Chon and our deputy editor Richard Beals about what to expect. After that, we go to a country where political transitions are few and far between, and that's China. Pete Sweeney and Yarwen Chen give us a rundown on a gigantic economy where local government finances are stressed, social frictions are rising, and private sector investment is dangerously slowing. Well, Joe Biden is now President of the United States um, after his inauguration, uh, rounding off a fairly tense couple of months and a and at times fraught election cycle. Um, Gina, uh, if there's anyone who knows their way around a presidential inauguration, it's you. Uh, tell us, what do you make of this? Like you, you, you saw Biden give his speech. Um, you've been looking in some detail at some of the things that are going to be on his agenda and that of his team. So what, what did we learn about this new administration from this inauguration ceremony? Well, we did see him stick to his theme of unity and cooperation and reaching out to the other side of the aisle. Uh, He was quite genuine about that. And we did see uh, actual Republican leaders from Congress also join him in the inauguration ceremony after um, many of them did not acknowledge his November victory. Um, But we will see how long that holds. Uh, This is still Washington. And unfortunately, things have gotten even more divisive um, since Biden was last in D.C. during the Barack Obama presidency, and the Democrats only have a slim majority in the Senate. So it will take all of his uh, negotiation skills and cajoling Republicans, uh, in addition to, I should say, moderate Democrats on his side to really tackle a lot of the things he wants to get to, including um, really continuing relief for the ailing economy due to the pandemic and longer term issues like uh, raising the minimum wage. And we've already seen, Gina, the beginning of Biden kind of assembling his team. Janet Yellen already had her hearing as um, head of the um, Treasury Department. How does she fit with that idea of kind of unity and bipartisanship? Because she she basically seems to be someone who's fairly popular on both sides, fairly moderate and maybe quite good at doing some of the things that you've just said Biden needs to get done. Yeah, she had a pretty easy time at her hearing. Um, There weren't any really contentious moments. The Republicans did indicate they had some uh, issues with Biden's spending plan, especially because there aren't any um, pay for uh, policies to make up for that spending. Um, But it was fairly mild, uh, especially when compared to her predecessor, Steven Mnuchin, uh, four years ago, and and his hearing was actually pretty acrimonious. Uh, So she should have a pretty easy time. But to, again, sort of reflect the uh, divisiveness, um, 
Biden is starting his presidency without any cabinet officials confirmed, uh, which is very different from the Obama administration. I think he had about six or so. Trump had two or three, uh, but that's mainly because they were slow in their transition and getting all their paperwork done. Um, so Biden is really just kind of on his own uh, with the uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, um, in the White House and none of his uh, top aides, at least the ones who have to be confirmed in office yet. But hopefully uh, the Senate will start to get the ball rolling on that next week. Yeah, I would say with the, the beginnings of the process, I mean, just stepping back even further from what Gina was talking about, you know, even with Janet Yellen, a sort of known figure, um, the, the sort of tone of Biden's speech, I think we, we you know, it's this is as expected, but we can expect a little more predictability, a little more pro clear prioritization, a little more communication. And, you know, frankly, as a, as a journalist trying to cover some of this stuff, that's a bit of a relief that we're not going to be chasing off in this direction and then that direction. I, I think those things will be laid out much more clearly by this administration. And, and, um, and, and that's a big change, I think. So um, the other thing that obviously Biden does inherit is a massive pile of debt. Uh, we've now got federal debt at about 100 percent of GDP and counting. Richard, you've been kind of sizing up that huge pile of borrowings and working out what's going what, what's going to happen to it. Now it looks like it looks like the first thing that's going to happen is that their debt's going to go up, right? Because Biden is talking about a significant stimulus plan, which Yellen seems yep. to be on board with. Um, yeah, and this is what you're seeing all around the world, right, John? I mean, it's it's this. I think there's a pretty clear consensus, and it's not really just the mainstream either saying you know now is the time to spend while well, we have coronavirus lockdowns and the economy shut down or in lots of places or at least partially this is not the time to start saying oh we should be you know breaking even or not spending less money however 100 percent of gdp is a level that for the us hasn't been seen since the end of the second world war i think i'm right in saying and even before covid it was creeping up partly thanks to Donald Trump's tax cuts, which obviously reduce revenue and therefore um, increase how much the government has to borrow. So it, it will come back as an issue almost certainly in budgeting in the US in this rule that the America has about, uh, in addition to a budgeting process, having to keep raising this cap on uh, the federal debt and so on and so forth. And, and that means that at some point Biden and his team will have to grapple with some other big issues. You either have to cut some costs or you have to raise some revenue. And, and all those things are very political, whether it's uh, cutting healthcare costs that the government either gives states or, or covers for individuals directly, uh, cutting defense spending, which is the other only other really big ticket item that could, could move the needle on its own, or raising taxes. So I'm not saying those are gonna happen now. It's churlish to say that after spending an extra, you know, a deficit of $3 trillion last year. Um, you know, now, now should be the time to try to close that to zero. But in four years, they're sure to come around. You, you mentioned, Richard, you wrote about this um, recently, and you, talk, you, you sort of harked back to the Bipartisan Fiscal Responsibility Commission that was now a decade ago under Barack Obama. Is that, I mean, if the theme of the Biden administration is let's all get along with each other, is that a thing that could, um, you know, get a second outing under Biden. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear what Gina thinks about that too. But I would, I would say, yeah, this isn't going to be on the first hundred days to do list, or probably the first years to do list. But 
you know, if you're trying to put government finances in the US back on a better footing, I mean, hopefully there'll be economic growth and that will help. But even with that, the projections are that it's not going to happen. So you have to do something. And if, if he believes in bipartisanship and if it seems to be working at all, then trying to find, you know, a, a, a prominent Republican and a prominent respected Democrat who can get together and do something similar, put together a bunch of ideas, some of which Congress can then agree on, seems like the logical way forward at some point. But what do you think, Gina? Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's not going to be a, a first 100-day priority, but you could see after uh, hopefully the the pandemic starts to fade and, and if there is growth again and, and some of these policies have been put in place for them to start thinking more about the sustainability of the U.S. fiscal picture. And Janet Yellen at her confirmation hearing did talk about that and um, the long-term worries about wanting to put the U.S. on a sustainable path in terms of its uh, fiscal health. It's just uh, something that's more down the road, but it's certainly, you know, would be up uh, Biden's alley to do something like that. Gina, you, um, you've you also looked at the team that Biden's put together, this sort of so-called dream team. Um, and just tell us a bit about kind of how you how you kind of rank them, because we actually literally have a scoring system, right? A breaking views. You, you designed this dream team kind of calculator a while ago where you could pick who would be on Biden's team and each person comes like a kind of top Trump score based on their past experience. And it looks like by your um, by your yardstick, he's actually picked quite well, right? If all of these people actually make it uh, into the post that he's got in mind for them. Yeah, it's definitely an experienced team. They all have uh, a background in government service, um, most recently during the Barack Obama administration. Yellen herself was um, uh, before Federal Reserve Chair and before that uh, president of the um, Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. That was during the financial crisis. So she's well aware of, you know, things that happened at that time. Uh, Biden's top economic advisor in the White House is Brian Deese, who's a veteran of the uh, auto bailout from that time. So they all definitely know how how government works, what levers they can pull, and um, and how to make things happen. The challenge for them, though, is that the problems they face are so enormous. Uh, in addition to the pandemic itself, just a lot of um, structural changes that have been taking place as a result. Um, massive uh, dropout of women in the workforce, uh, people of color, particularly Blacks and Hispanics, being hurt um, more with with job losses and and other uh, financial pain. Um, The opioid crisis, which had already been bad before COVID-19 hit, um, getting even worse and that hurting men in their prime working years. So there's a lot of things that um, they have to get to where they could use uh, actually a little bit of creativity and maybe thinking outside the box of traditional financial assistance to, you know, dealing with childcare and and other issues that uh, these populations are suffering from. I mean, it occurs to me that they even need to look at the electoral process itself, right? Because one of the things that that came out quite clearly is that there are some significant problems with people's access to the polls, people's willingness and 
um, ability to vote. And, and the turnout for this election was high by US standards, I think 63% of the voting age population, but it was quite low compared with most of the rich countries. And if you are on a, you know, if you're being paid by the hour and, and you have a very fragile hold on your job, taking an entire day to stand in line to vote is not ideal and a lot of people can't do that and isn't it was interesting that, that i think the democrat the senate democrats are planning to make one of their first priorities or certainly the first bill that they're going to consider is going to be to try and reform the electoral process itself so that some of those um, more vulnerable populations and low-income voters can actually get to the polls for next time i think this is so this is so interesting this whole issue because you know you think from anything you see on television that voters take take it hugely seriously and care a lot and then a lot of people don't actually vote and there are lots of reasons for that as you say John and then it all depends on states as well as the federal government so it's a super complicated issue but um, you know the more Biden's crew or or the Senate whatever can get people involved it's kind of part of that whole civics thing right if you can make people feel involved hopefully there's a little more room for compromise and discussion and so on. Yeah, and to John's point, I mean, the the economics that play into that of, of people who um, don't have the luxury of taking time off to vote uh, and other impediments, um, you know, changing some of that could make a big difference. Make it a holiday. Yeah. Right. Which actually almost all the Democrat uh, contenders backed except for Biden, I think. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Gina, and thanks, Richard. And with that, over to our colleagues in Asia. Hello, everybody. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I'm chatting with our China columnist, Chen Yawen. Um, Hello, everyone. Yawen. Uh, hey, Yawen. Uh, it's, it's good to chat with you about this because I'm getting a little nervous. Um, there's been signs of a renewed outbreak in northern China. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to be getting the Chinese government more and more nervous. Uh, what's going on and how worried should we be? Yeah, ever since um, the start of this year, so there are, there are a rising number of local governments introducing very strict um, social distancing rules and lockdowns just because Beijing's neighboring province, Hebei, is becoming an epicenter of a second wave of um, outbreak. And now I think um, and what happened in Hebei? Why, 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 where did this it, come it, from? It was quite, it was really sudden. So the government seems to think that the uh, virus came into China via either cargoes from abroad or um, just uh, visitors returning from overseas. Mm. Um, and so there's suddenly a cluster of, I think, a few dozen um, in 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 Hebei, just in the first the first four days of January, and the numbers just keep going up, and it's been exceeding 100 cases per day. Um, so ever since that, Hebei and some parts of Beijing have been very nervous, and at the same time, the northern the northeastern provinces of Heilongjiang and Liaoning, and even Inner Mongolia, are having uh, sporadic outbreaks as well at the same time. So overall, in northern China, there are now about 100 million people um, who have been impacted by the lockdown measures and social distancing uh, restrictions that the local governments have introduced. Um, Beijing is definitely very nervous because the Chinese New Year is just 
a few weeks away. They are, they're trying to warn people against traveling back home. Um, if some local governments are even giving incent, small incentives for people to stay. And the state... Like financial incentives. Yeah, or just like shopping coupons and movie tickets. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so how big of yeah. a problem is this? Um, you know, uh, it, obviously, obviously, everybody hopes they, they get it under control quickly, but... Um, right. The case but numbers if, look if very small. If it continues at this, yeah, okay. Yeah, the case so numbers So on balance, or do you think this is going to be under control through the same draconian measures that we saw rolled out before, or um, is it is it going to be more difficult this time? Eventually, yes, but it could drag on for a while, and that will have um, repercussions for growth in Q1, especially as China is trying to deleverage and um, exit from the stimulus measures they introduced last year. Um, so yeah, well, on, on balance, mm-hmm. we were just looking at the last year's GDP. Um, right. You know, it came in, you know, all things considered, relatively well, up 2.3% for the year. Um, it was actually really helped. impressive. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a quite impressive recovery in the second half. You know, there was a lot of, of money churned out, but you were already a bit worried mm-hmm. that this was seeming a little unbalanced. What are the current problems with the the state of the Chinese economic recovery. Yeah, there has been a lot of side effect just from the strong measures, measures both socially and economically the government has introduced. So for example, a lot of local governments, they have been very like further in debt and they're physically stressed, especially as the government is trying to curb land sales in the second half. They were worried about- Which are very important yeah, contributor to the local government revenues, right? Yes, because real estate was really strong last year in the first half. And some provinces have also been uh, spending a lot of money just in social welfare and medical services. For example, in Hubei, where Wuhan is the capital, the debt to fiscal revenue ratio has gone up to over 600%, very high level that the government so that means the government has to to be faced with a lot of debt repayment pressure in the in the year to come. Yeah, and we've already seen some state-owned enterprises, well, provincial enterprises, most of them, I believe, post these surprise bond defaults, which has yes. really rattled people. Obviously, if we see like recurrent outbreaks, well, I guess the main question is, I think you know, at, at a certain point last summer. I think most Chinese people and, and a lot of people observing China outside thought that like this was over, it was done, the Chinese method had sorted it out and China could just move on while everybody right. else in the West was kind of still struggling out of it. Psychologically speaking, you know, having 100 million people on various phases of lockdown, I think that they're building, you know, they're closing the airports, you said, I think, and, and kind of making travel difficult again and, and going back into the freezer in, in some areas. Psychologically, do you expect that to have a big impact on consumption and kind of economic activity by ordinary people? For sure, especially I think the state media is really giving a lot of warnings about do not go out to eat, try to stay at home (laughs) as much as possible. So even though the virus numbers look relatively small compared to what we see in the West, people have been psychologically, I think, given the impression that it's really bad right now and they want to avoid social contact as much as possible. I think Chinese media 
have, have been reporting like the streets have been empty, a lot of police, civilians. This is in there. Hebei, this is in the affected region, not. I mean, is, yes. this, is this is attitude spreading to other other places? It's, it's it's spreading in the sense that people, even in places that are not affected, are wary about traveling. So they don't well, and, and do travel that is necessarily. The big issue, right? Sorry, mm -hmm. the travel is the big thing that people are worried about because I mean, ordinarily the the Chinese New Year holiday is like a week long, and the whole country kind of moves around. And yeah. It's like the biggest movement of human human people, I think. Uh, yeah, at one the time, anywhere in the world, yeah, it's a huge migration. Yeah. So everybody goes someplace, and they all spend money, and they're off, and so it's it's you know a golden period for restaurants and and travel agencies and airlines and all that stuff. And it sounds like that's already been taken off the table. Is that the case? For government SOE employees, I think yes, they've been forced to stay where they are. There there is consequence if you violate that rule. But I think for private companies. I, I don't think there's a strict ban yet. It's just more of an implicit warning and you have to kind of take the risk yourself. And I've seen a few places in China they've been making travel difficult just by putting on more like stricter travel uh, requirements. For example, you have to, even when you're traveling from province to province, you have to provide a test, a negative test result or be quarantined for 14 days. So some people are not willing to take that kind of risk and also bear the cost. Well, with that in mind, uh, how fast is the vaccination process going? Uh, China has a couple of candidates. Is Can can the, the vaccine ride to the rescue anytime soon? I think it's still being rolled out. Like the official data showed it has given 15 million vaccine shots so far. So that's still relatively small compared to China's 1.4 billion people. And I think domestic medical experts have, have been kind of disappointed at how slow the injection rate has been in particular overseas. So one estimate I saw is that I think they, they are forecasting the U.S. will only have maybe 30 percent of the population injected by the end of this year. So they're they're very worried this this the arrival of the vaccines is not the end of, you know, like social distancing anytime soon. All right. Well, thanks so much, Yawan. Um, we'll keep monitoring this and uh, and hopefully we'll come back under control soon. Um, and everybody will have a happy Chinese New Year, even though it doesn't sound like that's at risk right now. Uh, thanks for chatting with me. Sure. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. Props to our producer, Freddie Joyner, in New York, and of course to you, our listeners. Subscribe to The Views Room and to our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, all the usual places. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com.